we're in Isaiah chapter 11 right now. We started a series last week looking at the subject of Advent, which is basically just another way of describing the arriving. Uh, it's the time of the year throughout the church calendar, which is not really necessarily in the Bible, but it came later as a way of basically implementing discipleship, retelling the story over and over again of the gospel. Um, and Advent really is the season for us to focus our mind, our affections, our heart, our mind, our intellect upon God, and it's particularly upon what God has done for us in light of Jesus coming into the world. As I mentioned earlier, the big theological word for that is the incarnation, God becoming mankind, entering into flesh and bone, the incarnation. And so what we've been doing is each week looking at some element, some aspect of the incarnation, of what this means for us and why it's such a big deal for us as followers of Jesus. So last week we looked at the subject of home uh, from exile. Uh, Today what we'll be taking a look at is the subject of healing from decay and all these that are on here is not in any necessary order. But we're looking at various elements of what Jesus has come to accomplish, what Jesus has come to do. So the, the real main thing is to invite you into this story so that you would have your heart reshaped, remade, uh, reaffected if, it, if you've grown bored or stiff or cold or forgetful of this message, to re-enter into the story and have your heart turned back to life again with regard to the great reality of this. So um, we've been looking at various elements. Mainly we'll be looking at, over the next few weeks, of just the subject of Isaiah, the prophet of Isaiah. And today we'll be looking at uh, Isaiah chapter 11 and a little bit of chapter 10. So before we read, I want to give you a little bit of the backstory to this, because Isaiah was what the Bible describes as a prophet. And really what you have throughout the Bible is, without going into the whole background of it, you have the story of Israel's history, and it composes a really, really long portion of the Old Testament. So you have like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, which these big, massive historical books. You've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Judges, these Big, massive storylines. And they tell this story, really, if you think of it, of a lot of brokenness, a lot of messed up brokenness. So if you've ever read books like Judges, all right, to me, Judges is the darkest book in the entire Bible. It's just filled with chaotic stories, really strange stories, almost stories that you might be shocked to even know that's in the Bible, but it's there. And it's really a way of just simply pulling back the thin veil that says, look, we as a humanity are really screwed up. We're really messed up. All of us are are stricken with this disease called brokenness. And it's it's tied intricately to our rebellion. Um, Really, more so, our rebellion comes as a result of our distrust of God. So rather than... Uh, Like we followed the path of Adam and Eve. So rather than trusting God, loving God and relationship, Adam and Eve entered into uh, a, a belief system of trusting an alternate story that rather than trusting God, loving God, they distrusted God. And this brought about this brokenness, this severing of relationship. And we as human beings have all suffered from the same problem. So really at the end of the day, all of us, most our problems with God can be summarized by the problem being we distrust God. We're just not really certain, can we trust God? The alternate story that we believed is God's withholding something from me. That's the storyline that we believe. That's the narrative we've adopted. And we live our lives according to that alternate narrative that says God's holding out. 
and I'm not really sure if God really cares about me, and I'm not really sure if God cares for me, loves me, has my best interests in mind, so I need to find some other alternative means or way by which to make good of my brokenness. And yet, the invitation of the gospel is to come back to see that God is actually trustworthy, that you can trust him. And so, throughout Israel's long, vast, dark, dysfunctional, broken history, there are these moments where people would rise up and begin to envision a future, imagine, reimagine what a future for Israel, and really, for the most part, for the whole world, what it would look like if Yahweh was really God. Like, really king over the people of Israel's history. What would it look like for Yahweh to take up charge and to really be king? And not just simply Hezekiah or uh, Josiah or some other king that, you know, is in this long lineage of the Israel's, of Israel, uh, Israel's history. Or some other kingdom or empire that's subjecting Israel like Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon or the Assyrian uh, government, a guy embodied by a guy named Shennacherib. What would it look like for Yahweh to be king? Not Shennacherib, not Nebuchadnezzar, not any lineage of other people in Israel. What would it look like for Yahweh to be king? That's the big question that would oftentimes be raised by this uh, group of people. We call them the prophets. So I think of the prophets as being like poets. And they would write these stories. They would envision, they would imagine what the future would look like. So if we were to sort of um, transpose them into today's culture, they would be the musicians. All right, they'd be the rock stars. They'd be the Bob Dylans of the day. Give them a guitar and harmonica, and they're like absolute gold. All right, they would begin to sing and put forth statements of reimagining what would world look like, the world look like if God was king. So Isaiah, that's exactly what he's doing. And he's doing it within the context of a scenario within the people of Israel's history is that they lived in a place of total uncertainty. And the reason why they lived in a context of total uncertainty is that imagine Israel was sort of this this anemic, weak, um, very subject, very vulnerable to outside forces uh, position. Um, If there's anything that took place in America at 9-11 was we realized that we are deeply vulnerable as a nation. True? We realized that we are not as strong as we purport. We're not as fortified as we've been told that we are. We are not as protected by our servants, civil servants and military and police force and all that, no matter how good a job they want to try to do. We are not as protected and secure as we are tended are told to believe that we really are, right? You guys all agree with that? Israel lived in a very similar condition. And yet the threat that was facing them was an empire. This empire was called the Assyrian Empire. If you're familiar at all with history, you know that the Assyrians were absolutely brutal. And what they would do is they would go into areas without going into all sorts of details. They would just utterly terrorize and murder all sorts of people. And then they would take over. They would take charge. And so there was this threat that Israel was facing of this fast-moving empire called the Assyrian Empire coming down from where they were and destroying and devouring the people of Israel's livelihoods. So to put it into context, if you lived in that context, and if you were, for example, a man like I am, I would ask questions. What's what's my future look like? What's going to happen to family farm? If I own a farm, what's going to happen to my daughters? Will they be okay? Do they have a future? Will they be raped? What will happen with my wife? 
Will she be uh, given in marriage to somebody else after my, uh, my, my dead body's laying on the ground? What would happen? These would be the very real types of circumstances they're facing. And the questions that were going through the minds of the politicians of the day was, what are we going to do as a nation of people in Israel that, you know, have Yahweh as God? What are we going to do to be strong, to maintain uh, the status quo? And they were beginning to devise plans and trying to make uh, alliances with other nations, with Egypt and other types of nations that had military. So the idea was that if we can spread ourselves out and um, co-opt other forms of nations to come in, we'll be protected against this Assyrian army. And God says in Isaiah chapter 10, absolutely not. The Assyrians will crush you. You have no way to stand against them. And then God says in Isaiah chapter 10, um, but I will one day crush the Assyrian Empire because they're arrogant, but I will allow the Assyrians to do what the Assyrians will do. And then at some point, Isaiah the prophet begins to reimagine and probably even pray, God, we need you. We're vulnerable. We're desperate. We're fearful. We're terrified. We're discomforted. We're absolutely paralyzed by this unknown future. God, what will you do? And all of a sudden, the prophet begins to write in Isaiah chapter 10 as he begins to reimagine what a future would look like for Yahweh to come back and be king. So that's the backstory. Let's read uh, Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah's uh, poem, if you would, of how he imagines what the future will look like in the most uncertain of times. So on the passage that we have up here on the screen, um, I actually have this out of the New Living Translation, so I'm actually going to read out of that because I like it. It reads really nice other than the ESV, which I typically read out of. But I'm going to begin at verse 33 of chapter 10. We'll just read that. And there is also 34, but I won't read that. And then we'll jump right into Isaiah chapter 11 and begin to pick up the prophecy from there. And hopefully it'll make sense. Uh, He says, look, the Lord of heaven's armies will chop down the mighty tree of Assyria, that great or with great power, he will cut down the proud, the lofty tree that will be brought down. Verse 1, the prophet begins to reimagine God's future kingdom. And he says, but out of a stump of David's family will grow a tree or a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance, nor will he make decision based upon heresy. He will give justice or, uh, or judgment, some of your translations might uh, describe, or justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word. And one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. Verse 6, in that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lay down with a baby goat, and the calf and the yearling will be safe with a lion, and a child, little child, will lead them. The cow will graze near the bear, and the cub and the calf will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw or hay like a cow, and the baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, even a little child will put its hand in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with the people who know the Lord. Some translations might say will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Verse 10, he says, In that day the heir to David's throne 
will be a banner of salvation to all the world. And the nations will rally to him. And the land where he lives will be a glorious place. This is God's word. Let me pray. God, we read this passage and we are... um, we just recognize God in a lot of ways. Uh, the storyline, the backstory of, of Israel is not too dissimilar from ours. God, we live in uncertain times. We know that everybody that's running for political office right now, every one of them, every single one of them, has a vision of how to make America great. Every one of them. And you got, we, we also know that there's a cynicism that goes along with that because we, we also know that so is every other leader in America as well. God, we are broken people. We live in a broken world. And what we're asking, God, right now, that you would bring to light the heart of God in our midst. And God, that that would compel us and transform us and capture us afresh and anew that we would love you we would serve you. We would move from elements or an area of distrust to a place where we embrace you and trust you. We embrace your kingdom, your goodness, in place of all sorts of all their alternate stories that we oftentimes embrace and we give our loyalty toward. So God, we just commit this time in your hands and we pray that you'd help us and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right. So... I really want to just look at two things here this morning, um, two things, and it's keep it kind of nice and sweet and simple and short. And first thing that we'll take a look at is the earthly empires um, that Isaiah talks about. And what we see with regard to these earthly empires is that earthly empires always lead to sin and brokenness and decay. I don't need to give a lot of a backstory as to like what type of sin and brokenness and decay that we live with in our world that is affecting us. Um, but I think if you just, you know, take a little bit of a stock inventory of the past week, um, when you heard about the scenario that was going on in San Bernardino, how many of you were just filled with a sense of shock uh, aside from a residual terror where you're just like, oh, my gosh, that's home. That's, that's, not, that's not Boston on the other side of America. That's not, you know, another country, uh, another part of the world in Kenya. That's, that's, that's in California. That's, that's in our hood. Um, and some of us, we oftentimes uh, even begin to let our mind wander, like, what would happen if that happens here on the Central Coast? Is it possible for it to even happen here? And the answer is, absolutely, of course it is. And, and that's, that's what's terrifying about this. It's like, yes, absolutely, we can't be foolish. Of course this is going to happen here. But the point of the matter is, is that oftentimes with the empires of this world, oftentimes the way it works, the way empires have always worked, is they work oftentimes by way of fear and terror and murder. So let me give you an example of this. Empires, basically for the most part, are a collection of nations or people groups or people that basically form a vision as to how the world should be lived out. That's what an empire has always been. So every empire, basically for the most part, has a vision for how to make the world a better place. Every empire does that. All right, every empire basically starts with this presupposition that says we have the best way of making the world a better spot. And so we're going to promote our world, our way of living, and hopefully it'll make things better. But oftentimes what happens, because most empires for the most part throughout history have always had a lot of power, a lot of might, a lot of military, a lot of money, and a lot of means 
to basically promote their idea. So let me give you an example of this. Um, today, right now, ISIS, for the most part, views itself as, as an empire that is spreading, that its aim, its goal is to continue to spread. They see themselves as what would call, be called a caliphate, which is, for the most part, an Islamic empire. Uh, they have a vision. So just like all, all empires, they have a vision as to how to make the future a better place. Their vision for a future really has to do with submitting and subjecting all people under the rule of Allah. They call it Sharia. And what happens if you disagree with that? What happens if you live in the environment that is occupied by ISIS, uh, you know, empire, and you disagree with that? Well, the solution to that is either death, right, beheading, or forced conversion, or terror, and this is the way all empires, so ISIS, for the most part, is not novel. They're not new. They're basically, for the most part, borrowing the same constant, repeated type of uh, propaganda and motivational tactics that have been employed for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That's the point that I'm making. Okay? So here's my point. Um, I've read a lot of like, interesting articles and watched various like, uh, you know, documentaries on ISIS occupied territory. One that I watched recently it was kind of fascinating because it was basically interviewing uh, people's day in, day out life in occupied area and territory. And basically, for the most part, they would just simply describe it in simple terms by saying it is completely uh, just deathly. Like it, it is, it is a position of death. Like we we don't have the freedoms that we used to have. Um, we all live in terror. We're all afraid. Women are afraid because if for some reason their dress, their burqa comes up a little bit too high and you can see their ankle, they're going to be rebuked or something else like that will happen or they'll pay some fine. And if it happens multiple occasions, they might have their leg cut off. There's various forms of terror that happen within that context. So here's my point. It's not novel. It's not distinct from any other type of empire. But here's my point. All empires have always led to just simple brokenness. All of them. All of them. I mean, there are elements that come out and have come out and have been good. I mean, the Roman Empire left us great roads, right? Um, some of which are actually still used today. There's great uh, you know, culture that's been part of that. Um, but for the most part, um, if, you, if you live within that context, um, it is ruled by, governed by fear. Or another way of thinking about it, just destruction, brokenness. Because that's how all earthly empires, for the most part, are going to be able to work. And they're basically described, defined by human beings, people like you and I, that occupy them or that make them up. So within the context of an empire, you have individual people like you and I. So you can talk a little bit about personal sin. When we think about sin, we oftentimes think about sin in terms of personal sin, like you know, uh, getting drunk or downloading porn or rape or sex outside of marriage, whatever types of things like that. And all that may be part of personalized sin. But I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about systemic sin. And this is the type of sin that is incorporated into what we would call systems. Systems of sin. In other words, the way that all empires operate is that there are systems, operational systems, that perpetrate the brokenness, the crushing, the oppression of other people... And this is it's sin. It's, it's destroying, crushing the image of God in other people's lives. So, um, and it's oftentimes not, it's never described in the context of an empire as a system of sin. So what we call it, for example, what we might in America be like, well, it's the economy. Stupid, right? It's the economy. It's all about the economy. It's all about money. It's all about making money. Really oftentimes what feels that behind that is greed. We, we have this insatiable desire 
for acquisition. We need more stuff. We're greedy. Like we're, we're, we, literally, it's, it's like keeping up with the Joneses. If your last name is Jones, no offense to you. But the point of the matter is we're told to keep up with you. But the point is, is that the idea of acquisition is part of, it's interwoven into the system that says, in order to be somebody within this context, within this culture, you've got to acquire more and more stuff. But no one ever calls it greed because that just sounds so dirty and bad and horrible. But the reality is we just call it economy. We just call it economics. We just call it, you know, growing or growth, expansion. Another one is to think about security. So we live in a context and a culture that basically says we live in a state and a culture that offers us security. And yet at the same time, it's sort of a cover-up word for violence. But nobody wants to call it violence because it sounds so bad. You know, to call a cop killing uh, a minority in cold blood, call that violence. Like, no, no, that's just security. He's just protecting us. But here's my point. All right, now I'm trying to get political. I'm just simply making the point. The reality is that we live in a culture that brokers in brokenness and decay and destruction because we have these empires that are led by human beings that at the end of the day will always lead to brokenness in our lives. And just like in Isaiah's day, we, we oftentimes cry out like, God, is, is there any help in the midst of this chaos? I mean, I, I found myself this past week like wondering the same thing, like looking at our culture and realizing like, okay, if, if ISIS is, you know, their overreach is coming into America and California, you know, just down the street for the most part, you know, a few hundred miles down the street from us, what's to keep that... Uh, boundary from you know making its way up the coast or making its way into our territory or into our own city, where the case is, or what you know. But the reality is is that these things can oftentimes become crippling. But the point that I would make is that it causes us to ask the question, like God, where are you, and, and when will you come back and restore what you've promised that you would restore? And this is where we gonna, we move on and we begin to take a look at the next thing that I want to focus on is really not just so much earthly empires that we see described and what God says about these earthly empires that he's going he's gonna to cut them down. They're like a forest. They're like a forest that's gone, grown really big and really large. So he says in the last verse of uh, Isaiah chapter 10 is that what God says about this kingdom is I'm going to chop it down. And then he begins to describe in its place, I'm going to raise up another king, another kingdom that will come and he uses this language that's shocking. And this new kingdom that's going to come is going to come from this king that comes from a stump. Again, we'll, I'll get to the irony of this in just a second here. But just think about this for a moment. He chops down this massive forest. And what's God going to use to replace it? A stump? <laughs> that's shocking. That's just how God works. In most shocking ways, he brings a stump. And from the stump, this king's going to rise. And this king's good. And it's so powerful that this king is so good that he actually undoes the natural course of brokenness that's literally strung throughout all humanity and all society to the point where he even describes a wolf laying down with a lamb. Did you guys catch all that? I mean, you can imagine, like, like Isaiah's envisioning, he's imagining, my goodness, how extensive, how far, how ubiquitous will God's healing protrude. Basically, the answer, throughout the entire creation. God's healing will one day come forth everywhere. Think about this. It's kind of an 
interesting picture that he points out. He says the wolf and the lamb are going to hang out. All right, if you hang out, put a, a, a lamb in the presence of a wolf, uh, you have to keep replacing the lamb um, that, <laughs> regularly. Like the, the lamb will all of a sudden just vanish. You wake up in the morning, like, where's the lamb? Like there's blood on the wolf's lips. And you're like, I don't even know if they have lips. But uh, you're like, okay, replace the lamb. Because uh, they, they don't dwell in harmony together. He describes a leopard and a goat. He describes a lion and a calf and a yearling. I had no idea what a yearling was, so I looked it up. A yearling, I guess, is a baby uh, horse. Uh, he says that a lion and a calf are together. So actually, I thought, I'm, gonna, I'm just, just going to Google this and see what I come up. So check out this picture. So this is actually taken from a video. I actually posted it on my Facebook today. If you want to check it out, you can. Um, this lion is, has got a case of complete mistaken identity. He has no idea who it is because this lion actually is treating this little calf, it's a baby calf, as, as if it's one of its own. Like, they show this whole, it's a horrible video because it's, like, not filmed really well. Um, but this is a great little snapshot. They're literally butting heads. They're playing with each other. Like, a, a lion, a big beastly lion, and this little calf are, like, playing with each other. It's, it's shocking. So, we, you know, we see this, and it's, I don't this thing went viral, you know. And it goes viral because people see this type of stuff. They're like, no way. And God's like, way. It's, this will happen. Way. It, this will happen. One of these days, this will happen. This is a sea. This is a picture. This is, a, this is literally an appetizer of what will happen one day. God will bring this sense of universal healing and wholeness to all creation. And he says, he describes it as this, this kingdom. So that's what we've got to talk a little about real quickly, the subject of, of kingdom. What does it mean, this kingdom? Now, the word kingdom, kingdom of God, is actually not used here in uh, this passage that we just read, nor is it used really uh, in that context throughout the entire Old Testament. So you won't find the phrase, if you do like a search, kingdom of God, you won't find it in anywhere from Genesis to Malachi. But you will find it throughout the New Testament. And basically the idea of kingdom is, is in some ways foreign to us because for the most part as human beings uh, living in the West, we live under the rule of, of, of a democratic society where we vote in our, not king, but our president. But almost... Every other ancient culture had some form of a king, and that king, for the most part, was, was, was you know, either usurped the throne of a former king, stole it, somehow was able to take it, or was born into it. And so what you ended up getting was, was either a really good king or a really bad king. And the kingdom was oftentimes based upon the type of benevolence or goodness or kindness, whatever it was, of that king. Most kings, because most kings have been infected by the same disease that we all have been affected by, not only by personal sin, but are subjects of, of systemic sin, they have brought reigns of brokenness. So there we are back at empires again. Brokenness. Just purveyors of constant brokenness. Each new king that rises up, and I, I got a solution for the world, he begins to take over, and at some point his solution peters out, is overtaken by something more powerful, and you end up back at the constant cul-de-sac end of brokenness. So Isaiah envisions... An end of that earthly empire, and in its place, a new kingdom. So the idea of kingdom is, is a really important one. In fact, um, it's so important. In fact, I would even go so far as to say is that it's all that Jesus talked about. That's a big statement. You're like, if you want to summarize, like, what did Jesus talk about? Jesus, all he talked about, the same, the center of everything he talked about, can be summarized by the kingdom of God. Like, I thought he talked about moral stuff. Yes, but moral stuff was always subject to or secondary to the kingdom of reign, the kingdom of God. God's reign being put forth upon this kingdom. 
you might be surprised to even know that Jesus did not even go around telling people how to go to heaven when they die. That wasn't his message. It might involve that, might include that. Jesus' message from start to finish is God's kingdom. So what does that mean? God's kingdom come here. That's what he was saying. We see all the Gospels describe God's kingdom. Some of the Gospels might describe it as the kingdom of heaven. Some would describe it as the kingdom of God. Those are synonymous terms. The idea of kingdom is, 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 a, is a very important uh, concept throughout the entire Bible, especially within Jesus' teaching. So what does it mean? So to put it this way, the word dumb or king dumb, it's a, it's a composite word, king and then dumb. Uh, the word dumb is a Latin word that comes from the word domas, which basically means, so ready for this, it just simply means the condition or power or, dom, or dominion or authority or the state of. So domas means the state of, the condition or the authority of whatever uh, goes before it. So in this context, kingdom means the state, the authority, the condition of the what? King. King, right? So let's say, for example, freedom is the state or the condition of being free, all right? Uh, stardom is the state or condition of being a star. You guys get the idea. Boredom is the state or condition, which some of you might be right now, uh, the state or the condition of being bored, all right? So kingdom is the state or the condition of the king, his rule, his authority, his reign going forth. That's what Jesus was doing. This is what he's promoting. This is what he was preaching. This is what he was inviting people into was the state and the condition of the king. So the question needs to be asked, which is what the Israelites were always asking, especially in the prophets, what would it look like for Yahweh to become king? And this is the same question that Jesus was entertaining. What would it look like for God to become king? And what Jesus was saying is that what it looks like for God to become king is pay attention to me, And watch everything I do, and it will show you what it looks like when God becomes king. This is shocking. This was Jesus' message. And Jesus' whole point was like, you want to know what it looks like for Yahweh to become king? It looks like lepers being healed. It looks like blind people being given their sight. It looks like people that were once alienated and separated because cultural taboos, whether because they were female, whether because they were Gentile, or whether it was because whatever types of you know, ailments that kept them on the outskirts of culture and society, it looks like them being given a place at the table. And Jesus would say over and over again, this is what it looks like for Yahweh to become king. And he would always invite people, say, come, I'm the king. And we'll more on that in just a second. But in summary, what we see is this idea of kingdom is central to the message of Jesus. And what we see, there's basically three things that we'll take a look at. The king will be identified by. I'll go through these things quickly. But we're told that in this uh, passage in Isaiah that he will be identified by justice, meaning he will act in a way that is just. The word justice, uh, some of your Bible translations might translate it as judgment. Um, a lot of scholars would agree that that's actually not a really great translation because in our context, when we think of the word judgment, we think of God coming with a heavy fist and he's ticked. It's not at all. It means that God is going to come and set that which is wrong back to right. So, for example, if justice is withheld from somebody who is, uh, uh, let's say they're poor, they don't have money, they don't have means, they're not able to, to, to forge a bribe to get themselves out of the condition justice in that context would look like somebody coming in saying, hey, 
we're going to help you. I'm going to help you. I got the money. I got the means. I've got the wisdom. I've got the ability. Um, and, and I know the backstory to what got you in a circumstance right now. And I understand how you've been taken advantage of because you're poor. I'm going to help you. That's justice. God putting things back to right. Second thing we see is that this king not only will act according to justice, he'll be also identified by way of wisdom, which means that God will operate. This king, whoever it is, will act and do things in a way that are just shocking, that are absolutely countercultural, counterintuitive in some ways to the rest of the story of the world. So in other words, uh, let me give you a simple example of this. When we think about the concept of wisdom, uh, we think that what he's describing is that God is going to act in a way that's completely counterintuitive to the way that we typically think. So let me give you an example. We typically have this idea that in order to, a con- to conquer a, a, a powerful foe, the way we typically, the, the historical, conventional thinking of that is you need to be a stronger, greater, more powerful entity than the former entity, and you've got to crush them. That's the only way that you can ever advance uh, rightness or wholeness or justice in this world. You have to have a greater force, greater strength, greater power to crush the enemies. And what we see with God is this radically counterintuitive. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, pastor in New York City, describes it this way, that what we see with regard to God's kingdom is the way up is down. In fact, every John particular New Testament writer in describing the death of Jesus actually uses language of coronation. Jesus is being crowned king. How? Where? cross. Why? Because they're showing very clearly the wisdom of God that's at work. God is appending, undoing, confronting the false ideas in this world. Let me give you one other final example of this biblically of how God's wisdom is shockingly beautiful and shockingly good. Uh, here's a couple examples. One we just read, that uh, one that was most obvious in Isaiah chapter 10 describes Assyria as this massive Forest, right? Just think of it as Syria, this massive empire, this massive forest, right? How are you going to get through this forest? Well, God ends up cutting it down because there are occasions when this lion does roar, all right? There are occasions when God does speak forth, and it's absolutely profound and shocking. But in its place, God doesn't bring in another bigger, greater, more powerful forest. He brings in a stump. And out of this stump is going to grow a brand new plant that will provide fruit for the nations, for their flourishing, for their life, for their protection. Here's another example of this. Um, You can follow this type of theme throughout the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 2 is another great example of this. Daniel actually was one that has written a lot about the concept of empires and their destructiveness. And one of the things that Daniel writes in chapter 2 is there's a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He's this great, massive king. He sort of embodies, all right, um, uh, the pharaoh of Egypt, though uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, which is this great, massive, destructive empire. And so Nebuchadnezzar is deeply troubled, has this really bad dream, because typically people have a lot of money, a lot, of, lot to lose, are also accompanied by a lot of anxieties. So think about that. If oftentimes we are accompanied by a lot of anxieties ourselves, maybe it's because we are dreadfully afraid of losing stuff. But Nebuchadnezzar, nonetheless, has these constant 
anxious dreams. He wakes up in the middle of the night. He's looking for people to help him to try to figure this whole entire crazy nightmare out. He finds this guy, Daniel. Daniel comes on. Daniel was a Jew who was taken uh, in exile. He was basically taken away from his own country uh, in Israel. And now he's living in Babylon. He kind of becomes a servant to King Nebuchadnezzar. He comes in, basically says, King Nebuchadnezzar, here's your dream, right? Your dream was that you dreamed of this great image, this great image that was made by silver and gold and precious um, uh, metals and then clay feet, all right? Which, which, by the way, every one of those things I just described, where do they all come out of? The, the earth, right? That's the answer. Um, mountains, earth, dirt, they come from underneath our feet. So then, then Daniel, is, Daniel then goes on to say, here's the shocking reality, because in your dream, King Nebuchadnezzar, something really bad happens to you. So imagine if you're in Daniel's shoes and you've got to interpret this dream for this king that's uh, completely, uh, you're not sure if he's going to kill you, if he's going to give you a meal or promote you. You're not really sure, all right? If you, you know, frustrate him, he might just kill you, all right? But Daniel basically says, it's not going to go good for you because what this dream says is that there's going to be a rock that's going to rise up that's going to end up becoming this great mountain over you. So here's that counterintuitive wisdom of God. Like, how is God going to overcome this great, massive empire imaged by these massively precious stones? Well, a rock that will end up becoming this mountain will become this thing. Uh, Third one, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has this dream, very similar to the very first one, only the metaphors changed. And in this dream, Daniel envisions four beasts, all right? These are beasts. Uh, If you've ever read the book of Daniel, maybe even the book of Revelation, you've kind of been like, what in the world are these talking about? There's these crazy, weird, random beasts, which is all about. Well, most scholars would all agree that those beasts actually represent empires. So in Daniel chapter 7, he describes, here's how those beastly empires are going to be overcome. He says, one, like the Ancient of Days, this mysterious figure, you know, totally mysterious figure, rises up and he crushes. And most would agree that this Ancient of Days is shockingly human-like. So, in other words, the distinction is this beastly nature of empires and the humanizing nature of whoever this Ancient of Days is. So, somehow, God is going to overthrow this beastly empire by way of the action of a human being who humanizes other people. Shocking. Interesting. And finally, you get to the book of Revelation, one final one. Uh, many of you are familiar with some of the language throughout the book of Revelation. You see these pictures of these beasts, all right? And then you get to this picture throughout Revelation chapter 12, verse four, or Revelation 12 through chapter 14. It's a handful of chapters. You see John describing these crazy beasts. Have you ever read that? You're like, what in the world is he talking about? Are there really going to be beasts rising up out of the ocean? The answer is probably not. All right, just probably not. These are probably metaphors to describe massive empires that are going to be depicted or symbolized in the end times at some point throughout all time, but probably even at the end time. But the most important thing is to note how these massive beastly empires overcome. Ready for the punchline? It's shocking. It's so shocking it defies your wisdom. Guess what overcomes it? A lamb. Like what? I was waiting for, you know, King Kong. I was waiting for Godzilla. I was waiting for a swarm of zombies. A lamb? Yes, shocking. Because God's wisdom defies our wisdom. And this is the way in which God is describing my wisdom is way beyond your wisdom. Because what God is doing, his aim is not to bring more brokenness in this world. His aim is to bring healing. 
to your brokenness. So if God counters with more broken solutions, he just adds to the brokenness. But instead, God does something shocking. He completely appends the entire thing. And this is what we see God doing. And this leads us to the final one. I'll just close on this real fast. Is Then we see this king has and gives us a sense of surprise and even shock. Because what we see with regard to this king in verse 1 of chapter 11 and back in Isaiah and then uh, verse 10, we're told a little bit about the identity of this king. And this is, this is where it gets really, in some ways, almost paradoxical, all right? Uh, don't be afraid of paradoxes. They're not necessarily contradictions, but it's two ideas that are joined together. And here's what we're told about this person, whoever this identity is. He says in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says that this will be the shoot of the stump of Jesse, would be the shoot of the stump of Jesse. So imagine a, a stump right here, and this stump is identified as Jesse. So somebody be like, who's Jesse? Jesse is the dad of David, right? So if you're wondering, like, who's Jesse? Jesse is David, King David's father. So here's this stump. In the background, imagine uh, a trillion trees that have been mowed over, plowed over, they're destroyed. God taking his axe to them, uh, the, the, the lion roared, and they're all down. In its place, God's not planting another massive uh, Forrest, he, he takes a stump that everybody thought was dead. And out of this stump begins to grow a shoot. It gets more crazy because in verse 10 he says this, that this root of Jesse will be the one that comes. So, wait a minute. The question is, is it a shoot from the stump or is it the root of Jesse? The answer is yes. Because only in the life of Jesus what we see Final thing. I want you to turn your Bible real quick. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The very first book in your New Testament, if you have no idea where it's at. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read this to you and I'm done. It says this. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the King. So whenever you read the word Christ, Jesus Christ, where Christ is simply another way of just simply paraphrasing, saying King. Jesus the King. King Jesus, the Son of David. He tells us up front. Want to know what the story's about? It's about the king. What does it look like for Yahweh to become king? It looks like sick being made whole. It looks like dehumanized people being given a name. It looks like people that were once lost being given a place called home. It looks like people that were once alienated by their sin and their brokenness and their filth and their defilement that they've committed against other people and that maybe have been committed against them, it looks like them being forgiven and washed and cleansed. Who is this king? Well, he's the creator of David, but he's also the son of David. And it's only in the story of Christmas do we find this radical, mind-blowingly beautiful picture of to what extent God had gone to save us. Because if you and I were God, and someone were to come to us and be like, okay, how are you going to take care of the garbage in planet Earth? I think if we had like a little boardroom, a little discussion, somebody would be like, you know what, let's whip out our biggest guns, let's crush them, let's do it in the most flamboyant way, because that's how we can show to the world how great and powerful God is. But here's the shocking thing that God says, no, no, here's what I'm going to do. I'm thinking vulnerability. I'm thinking laying in a food trough. I'm thinking sitting in my own urine. I'm thinking of filth and stench. 
I'm feeding off of a lady named Mary for my life and sustenance. In other words, the most profound form of vulnerability. This is how I'm thinking. And this is the story that Jesus invites us into. One of the very first things that Jesus says over and over and over again, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What does he mean by that? He means to stop and look at what are the loyalties you hold onto right now in your life right now. What other kingdom images and pictures and snapshots and promises and hopes that you have held onto, that you've clung to in this world? And they define you. Capitalism defines you. Consumerism defines you. Here's the point that Jesus would make. Look, look, all of us, at some point, we are not only affected by the brokenness, we are also people that permeate and cause the brokenness. And what Jesus' invitation to us is to leave that system, empire, come into my empire, my kingdom. I'll forgive you. I'll heal you. I'll wash you. I'll cleanse you. I'll give you a new life. You'll be given a new name, a new humanity, and you'll be a part of the healing because you will have been healed yourself. This is the invitation Jesus gives. He says, what you got to do is repent. That means to recognize the other loyalties that you've devoted your heart to and believe, which means to trust, to move out of that realm of distrust of the king, to trust this king. You might say, well, how can I know I can trust this king? How do I know he's not going to crush you? Remember a baby in a manger. What's more inviting than a child? More vulnerable, less terrifying. Unless you've ever been a parent before, every first time parenting, like those little things are absolutely terrifying. So but you get the idea. Then recognizing that God comes to us in the most profoundly welcoming and inviting way. So we're going to respond. By singing, worshiping, partaking of communion, reminding ourselves to the extent that God is gone, to come into our world, to take our brokenness, and exchange bring healing. So these guys are going to come up. I'm going to pray. Why don't we all stand right now? These guys are coming up, and I'm going to pray over us. Let's sing. Give a moment, just a second, after, just to pray for each other. But let's, let's respond to this, God, because if, if indeed, if in reality, he, he is this king, and the question is, how do, we, how do we respond to a king? Like, what's the right response to a king? Right? Do you high-five him? Do you give him knuckles? Like, what, what do you do to a king? What do you do? Like, if he really is this king, that's not just simply, you know, a king over five or six people, but a king over all the cosmos. How do we respond to this king? I think personally, I think we'd be shocked and afraid, personally. But it's always in that context that we always see Jesus and others saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Draw near, come. I'm a God that these hands, as powerful as they are, as loud as my roar is, they bring healing. How do we know they bring healing? Because those hands were nailed to a cross. Took our pain, our shame, our brokenness, the full extent of our decay upon himself to the point of death. He allowed death to overtake him. And then he rises again. 
And this is the story he invites us into. Make him king. Turn your back on all other loyalties, all other empires, all other kingdoms, all other elements and traces of other kingdoms that just bring brokenness and decay in your life. And embrace, hold on to, trust the kingdom that God gives to you. So let's respond. Let's sing. If you're here, you got things that are going on in your life, you need prayer for anything, anything. I mean, you might look at your life and be like, I'm decay. Yes, that's me. I feel like I'm decaying. My relationships are decaying. My relationship with God is just non-existent. Like, we, we want to pray for you. That's why we gather as a church, not just to sing, not just to be preached at, but to respond to God. So let's respond.